Please do take a seat. Thank you very much, Jeff and uh, musicians. Now, if you've got a Bible there, I'd love for you to open up Hebrews chapter 2. If you haven't got a Bible, um, just put your hand in the air and uh, perhaps Stuart, I could ask you, Stuart, maybe to bring any Bibles forward if you'd like one. There, there's some, I think, at the back. Um, uh, I haven't got this switched on, Martin tells me. There you go, Martin. Um, and if you've got one there, your own Bible, Hebrews chapter 2, one of these Bibles, page 1202, page 1202, or you can pull it up on your screen. The Wi-Fi code uh, is on the back of the little leaflets you would have got given as you came in. So this is Hebrews chapter 2, page 1202. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 and sentence 10 is what I want to look at. Just one sentence, particularly we're going to have a look at today. Sentence number 10. The big letters are chapters, uh, the big numbers are chapters, the small numbers are sentences or verses and they help us navigate. So it's on page 1202, left-hand column, chapter 2 and sentence 10. This is what it says. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's talking about Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Do you see the word in the middle there, the word fitting? Can we just start there on that word? It is fitting that God would do it this way. Now what's remarkable, that word fitting means something like, doesn't it, it was right or appropriate, uh, just, decent, dead on that God would do it that way. It's fitting that God would do it that way. Now we should be a bit surprised by that because what, what the author of Hebrews, the first preacher of Hebrews is talking about is Jesus' death. So what he's saying is it's fitting that Jesus would die. So that horrendous and horrific death that was cruel and criminal, the slaughter of an innocent man, in fact a state-sanctioned and media-frenzied political assassination of someone who is utterly innocent of their crimes as a 32-year-old, that that was fitting? Fitting? If you read about that in the newspaper, and we read stories like this, don't we? Of women and men imprisoned as political prisoners, utterly innocent of any crime. We would never use the word fitting about that, would we? We would use the word, it was disgusting, abhorrent, horrific. And yet, he uses the word fitting. Now, why on earth is it fitting that Jesus should die like that, an innocent man in such horrific and criminal circumstances? In fact, just come with me for a moment, because as we get what the context of this sentence, as we realise what the original preacher, speaker, has said prior to this sentence, it actually escalates our unease with that word fitting. Because if you were here a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 1, we realised that he began by saying a couple of things in chapter 1. Firstly, he began by saying that Jesus was not a prophet. Now, prophets were pretty big men and women. Pro prophets were a pretty big deal. And yet he starts by saying, look, Jesus is not a prophet. He's so much better, so much bigger, so much more spectacular than a prophet. Chapter 1 and sentence 1, it says, In the past, God spoke in many ways at various times through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his son, Jesus, who is the exact representation of God and the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is not a prophet. And we reflected a little bit that kindly but clearly our Muslim friends and colleagues, we need to help them to realize that, that Jesus is not a prophet. But then second in chapter one, he said, secondly, that Jesus is not an angel. 
as spectacular and awe-inspiring and awesome as the angels are, Jesus is not an angel. In fact, Michael and Gabriel and all those legions of warrior angels that appeared at Jesus' birth bow down on their face. This morning, they are on their face in submission and praise of Jesus. Don't believe me? Just look back at chapter 1, sentence 6. Why don't you flick a page back in your Bible or, or roll your screen, chapter 1 and sentence 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn, another code for Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels are praising Jesus. And again, kindly and, clean and clearly, with our friends and colleagues who are Jehovah's Witnesses or when the knock comes at the door, we need to persuade them and show them that Jesus is not an angel. And so who is Jesus? Well, the amazing conclusion of chapter one, if he's not a prophet as great and wonderful as they are, not an angel as spectacular and celestial as they are, who is Jesus? Look at chapter one and sentence eight. But about the son, more code for Jesus, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever. About the Son, about Jesus, he says, your throne, O God. God calls Jesus God. Do you see that there? So the remarkable thing about chapter one is it elevates Jesus as high as is possible. He is God himself, above the prophets, above the angels, the creator God himself. In fact, chapter one, verse two and three say that, that Jesus creates the universe and made it all. Now do you see the shock of chapter two? The shock of chapter two, sentence nine, do you see it there where it says, but we see Jesus, we see this amazing Jesus, this Jesus who is God, the Jesus of chapter one, we do see Jesus who was what? made lower than the angels. The one who is above the angels and above the prophets, God himself is made lower. The creator of the universe is born in the, the, the squalor of a borrowed stable from creator to cradle. And then a carpenter with, with blistered hands and thick forearms and a, and a crook back from so much bending over. And then he goes to the cross and he, he dies. And then he's a corpse in a grave, but he's a creator God. Do you see the scandal of that? Do you see that in chapter one, it's divinity. In chapter two, it's humanity. In, in chapter one, he is majesty. In chapter two, he's, he's man. In chapter one, he's the creator. In chapter two, he's a corpse. How on earth is all of this fitting? Do you see the shock of that word, fitting? How on earth is it fitting that the beautiful, abundant, generous, powerful creator of the universe, Jesus God himself, would be mocked and spat on, would have a crown of thorns. Those thorns were about three inches long, as hard as iron. Jesus would have been forced on his knees in front of a soldier who would have worn kind of reverse boxing gloves made of thick leather and pushed all his weight down on that crown until those thorns wouldn't have just penetrated the, the thin flesh of Jesus' scalp, but into his very cranium, leaving fractures, spiderweb fractures of broken skull across his head. How is that fitting? Well, sentence 10 gives three answers. There's actually in the Bible a lot more than just three. 
But verse 10, sentence 10, gives three amazing answers. Answer one, it is fitting for our good as human beings. Whatever spiritual label you wear this morning, I'm going to try and persuade you to trust Jesus. It will be the best decision of your life. It is fitting because it's for our good. Secondly, it's fitting because it is for God's glory. It most actually displays God's wonder and splendor and awesomeness. And third, it is fitting for Jesus's fame. It most makes Jesus famous. Let's take each in turn, and there's quite a few applications, so come with me and be ready to hook the duck that's yours, okay? Hook the application that's yours. There's a number of them. First of all, it's fitting for our good. Look at the very beginning of sentence 10. We're just going to take each clause of sentence 10 in turn. It says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Many sons and daughters. The very assumption behind that word is a son is not better and a daughter is not worse or a daughter is not better or a son is not worse. Now, I know if you've got children, your children, like mine, will be constantly bickering about who's strongest, who's better and all the rest of it. I know, but we know as parents, don't we, that they're all equal. There's no difference between them. That's what's behind that little phrase, you see, that all people are brought to glory the same way. That is fitting, that we are all on the same level. The best way, I think, to understand this is just to look back one sentence and slightly rehearse what we looked at over the last couple of weeks. But some of us are new this morning and, and many of us would have forgotten you know, what happened yesterday, let alone what happened last week, haven't we? But if you look back at sentence nine, do you see the very end of sentence nine? It's again talking about Jesus's death. It says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for some people. Mm, doesn't say that, does it, if you've got a Bible there? He might taste death only for those whose name begins with the first half of the alphabet. Or you come from a country where your skin is a certain colour. Or you speak a particular language. It doesn't say any of that, does it? What does it say? Taste death for everyone. The only way to access God is through Jesus. And Jesus' death, it levels out the playing field. That's what's so fitting, you see. And that little word, taste there, I, I do not like that translation. There's never going to be an Alex Harris translation because no one would ever buy that. But if there was, I would put the word scoff there. In fact, I bet if we read the 50 weirdest Bible stories, I bet this story has the word scoff there. Because that's what it literally means. The word taste there conjures up ideas of a little a morsel. I'm going to say volivant for the third week running. Okay? Like you're eating a little volivant. But the original word in the first language this is written in means consume and scoff and eat it all up and lick the plate clean. Our, court, our friends of ours came to visit yesterday. They'd come down from Lancaster. They came to visit us yesterday. Was it yesterday or two days ago? I forget. Friday. They came to visit on Friday, Nathan and Ruth did. And, and they stopped at an awesome pork pie shop and they bought us four amazing pork pies. And one of our boys, I won't let you know which one, one of our boys was eating this pork pie and it was very, very nice. And then I looked over him and he's got the plate and he's like this. <laughs> Learned it from his dad. All right? Now, you would use the word here to describe that act. Every last crumb taken, just the plate cleaner than if it had come out of the dishwasher. Jesus has scoffed death. He's consumed it, devoured it. Every last crumb is gone. There is no death left on your plate. And that is the only way to defeat death is to let Jesus eat it, scoff it. And that is so fitting, you see, because it makes us all equal. 
all totally equal friends. We strive as a church, and that means you, me, us as individuals. There's no one else who is this church other than us in this room right now. We together strive to make this perhaps the only place in your life where you are fully equal with everybody else. Whether you are used to the burdens of leadership and just being fed up of being the only one with that responsibility. Or whether in your normal life, the rest of your life, you're down near the bottom of the slag heap. When you step into this community, we are just brothers and sisters. Because the only way to God is through Jesus' death. That's why it's so fitting, isn't it? That is why it's so fitting. And so there's no place for arrogance, a sense of functioning like I'm better than someone else, and no place for false deference, a sense that I'm not as good as anyone else. We're brothers and sisters, or in sentence 11, uh, sons and daughters, sorry, or brothers and sisters in sentence 11. Family with Jesus, sentence 11. I can't wait till next week. I'm going to explode. My heart will explode next week preaching with sentence 11 and what follows. Brothers and sisters with Jesus. Amazing. Second reason it's fitting. First, it's fitting for our good. All people are brought to glory the same way, utterly equal, all on par. (coughs) Secondly, it's good for God's glory. It's fitting for God's glory. It is the right, decent, dead-on way to display God fully. Look at the middle clause of sentence 10, if you would, if you've got a Bible there, or fire up your screen again. It said it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists. Everything was made by God, and everything exists to show what God is like, including Jesus' death. That that Jesus dying, God himself dying on the cross, is the manner that most shows God as splendid, as glorious, as awesome. Let me unpack it and show it for you again by glancing back to sentence nine. Would you look back at sentence nine um, with me? It says, we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, God himself made under the angels, died on a cross for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. Do you see the because there? Jesus is crowned with glory and honour, not because he rose from the grave and defeated death. He's not crowned with glory and honour because his teaching was so spectacular that 2,000 years later we're still adhering to it. He's not crowned with glory and honour because he's going to ride back victorious and reclaim his world. No, he's crowned with glory and honour. Why? Because he suffered death. His death is the reason he is given glory. And God is shown as glorious. Well, how on earth can that be? Well, the word glory, there'll be an opportunity for a brain break now and you can just relax the synapses for a moment. The word glory literally means the fullest public display of someone's excellence. The word glory, as we use it in English, means something like the fullest public display of what is excellent about someone. So when you're watching the TV and you're watching your favourite football team, I used this illustration a few weeks ago, didn't I? And your star striker traps the ball beautifully in the last minute, does a little shimmy around the last defender, sends the goalkeeper sprawling the wrong direction and crashes the ball home into the top corner. And you're listening to the commentary and the commentator says, that was glorious, glorious, what a glorious goal. What does the commentator mean? That moment showed publicly that striker's excellence and skill. That's what we mean, isn't it? The brilliance of that striker was put on display. It's glorious. 
Or come with the art gallery. Think for a moment, you're in an art gallery, you're, 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 you're sipping your, your cold white wine, there you are, you've got your volivant, right? And you're at the art gallery for, for the un, unveiling of the latest masterpiece by a, a renowned painter. And those silly little velvet curtains are pulled aside by some uh, B-list celebrity and, and this painting is revealed. And everyone gathered there goes, oh, glorious, glorious. What do we mean? We mean the excellence of that painter is no longer hidden, but put it on display for everybody to see. The skills of that painter are now made known. Or perhaps some of you, a new illustration, because I do have new ones, uh, some of you perhaps have gone to a Michelin star restaurant. Hands up, no joking, right? Some of you have. Yeah, woo! Margaret's showing off. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry, Margaret. Spotlight, spotlight. Yeah, yeah. But if you've ever been to a Michelin-starred restaurant, I haven't, by the way, but I do turn 40 later this year. Um, uh, there might be the chef's table. You get to sit at the chef's table, which means that head chef, the actual one who has the Michelin stars, is going to prepare with his own hands your food, not one of his second minions or whatever, the actual guy. And that food's brought out to you. And you take that first bite and for a moment you're lost in this blissful wonder of food. And you just whisper under your breath, glorious, glorious. What does it mean? One, you're a bit pompous. But secondly, <laughs> you're saying the, the hidden excellence of this food and of that chef has suddenly been put on public display for everyone to experience. Now, repeatedly, the Bible, not just here, but directly here, says actually the moment that the excellence of God is most put on display, the glory of God, the brilliance of God is most put on display, when his glory is most shown, is when Jesus dies. He's crowned with glory because he suffered. Because, friends, at that moment, the fullest display of God's love for us as he longs for our reconciliation with him and the fullest display of his justice as he treats sin and wickedness as evil as it deserves with full punishment. They are both fully and completely displayed as Jesus dies on the cross. The only moment in all of time, all of history, all of creation, where those two major aspects of God's brilliance are together put fully on display. His love fully made known for us. His justice against sin and wickedness fully made known as he punishes it completely. That's why this was fitting. The only way to fully show how amazing and wonderful and glorious God was is if God came and died for sin and for love. Maybe you need to trust him. Please, please, please trust Jesus if you don't yet. You can even stay and get baptised later this morning. You can just talk to me about that over coffee. Just say, I want to begin this journey without knowing any of the answers and only one of the questions, which is, do I trust him? And then third and finally, so it's fitting for our good. We're all equal and on par. There's only one way to God through Jesus. It's fitting for God's glory. It shows God as most splendid, his full nature made known. And lastly, it's most fitting because it shows Jesus' fame. 
It shows Jesus as most famous, most worthy of being famous than any other way could. Look at the final clause of sentence 10. I think it's the penultimate time we'll look down at our Bible. So look with me down at sentence 10 or find it again on your screen if you've got it there. It says this, the last clause, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, here we go, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. It's talking about Jesus that Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, is made perfect through what he suffered. Now, the, the risk in that little phrase, perfect through what he suffered, is we think that at some point Jesus was imperfect, don't we? And actually, repeatedly through the Bible, we're told that Jesus was perfect. Even those who murdered him could not find any fault with him. What it means, not, not that Jesus was once imperfect and had to be trained to perfection like a child growing, it doesn't mean that. It means Jesus' perfection was hidden, but then was made known. He was always perfect, but no one knew he was perfect. It's exa exactly like an exam makes known the knowledge that was hidden, but puts it on display. You don't have to get an F, do you, when you take an exam? You could get straight A's, but no one knows that you are a straight A student until you take the exam. You were always perfect, but no one knew it. Or the same way the crisis reveals the depth of your character. Your character doesn't necessarily have to be flawed, but no one knows what kind of character you have until the crisis reveals your character is so pristine. So it is with Jesus. He's made perfect through suffering, i.e. his suffering shows his perfection. He was always perfect, but nobody knew it until he was willing to follow obediently his father all the way, even from heaven to earth, to the grave for us. We now know he's perfect when we didn't before. And I love that little word pioneer. Do you see it there? The pioneer of our faith. It means the captain or the leader or the commander. So you run those two kind of ideas together and you get this wonderful image. Let, let me... Let me land us with this. Imagine for a moment there's a brutal war going on. So just come with me in your mind's eye. Allow your mind to draw a picture for a moment. Imagine there is a brutal war on. And soldiers, our young women and our young men, are being sent to that front line. And they're being captured and imprisoned and tortured and hated by copious numbers. And there is no breakthrough at all. And there is a fresh-faced young officer at Sandhurst, finished his training and is sent out. No one really knows anything about them. He's sent out. And his commanding officer sends him signals and commands and is in constant radio contact. And time and time and time again, 100%, this young soldier obeys exactly what his commanding officer says. He ends up on the front line. He frees troop after troop after troop from imprisonment until finally, actually with his dying breath, he unlocks that last prison cell and says, it is finished, they're all free. And those soldiers come home. Who are they talking about when they get home? They hug their wife, they hug their children. And then what do they say? They talk about that officer, don't they? They make that officer famous, and rightly he will be awarded the highest medal in the country. He's only famous because he followed the instructions of his commanding officer. His perfection was made known through his suffering. 
So it is with Jesus. Now, remarkably, Jesus says it is finished as he unlocks that last cage of sin. You, it could be you today as he unlocks that. He says, it's finished. The door's wide open. Step into freedom. But where that officer, that human officer I'm imagining, that is the end of his life, obviously, wonderfully with Jesus, we know from the mud and the mire, he puts his hand on the ground and lifts himself and then he's on his knees and then he's on his feet and then he is leading that victory train home to the praise of his name. It is absolutely fitting, absolutely fitting that Jesus should die on a cross, the creator of everything, should live in a cradle, should work at a carpenter's desk, should die on a cross, should be a cold corpse, absolutely fitting in God's economy. Because it's for our good. We are all on par. It's Jesus who does it and nobody else. You contributed nothing. It's good for God's glory. Because as Jesus dies on the cross, all of God's nature, his justice and his love together are displayed. And it's good for Jesus' fame. Because now we're talking about him. He was always amazing, always perfect, always obedient, always wonderful. Without his death, we would never have known. But now we do. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, you are God. You, appoint, you are the appointed heir of all things. You made the universe. You are the radiance of God's glory. You are the exact representation of his being. You're the sustainer of all things by your powerful word. You are the purifier of sins and you have sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And yet you chose to be made lower than the angels. You chose to be worse than a criminal. You were slaughtered in our place for our sin and you were a corpse in the grave. And we praise you and thank you for your willingness to do that for each and every one of us that because of that, the key has turned and we are free and we can step out and forward with you, our sin, shame, guilt, folly and foolishness behind us, now following you as our victorious commanding officer. We praise you and exalt you, Jesus. And we ask that our lips would sing it in our few last minutes together this morning, but our lips would only sing it to fuel our lives to live it, that Jesus might be displayed in all of his goodness and greatness as he truly is through us in this world. Help us as husbands and wives, as parents and grandparents, as those who struggle with money or sexuality. Help us men who find porn on the internet far too easy to click on us women who use sharp and nasty words to stir, stir hornet's nests, help us to turn away from these things. Because we know Jesus has freed us, everything is done, and he calls us forward into newness of life. I do pray genuinely, because this is the amazing reality of your Holy Spirit, is by week by week by week, today, on Sunday, a new day dawns. And I pray, Lord, that today that day would dawn and tomorrow would bring the new things that you have in store for us as we seek you and to live for you. And God's people pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to stand and Jeff is going to help us praise Jesus with a couple more songs. Somewhere in here we'll take our offering, I'm guessing, Jeff. Now that's just for our regular attenders or members who like to give in the old-fashioned way financially. So um, if you're our guest or with us uh, for the first time, just pass that bag um, by. Um, But let's really lift Jesus up. Let's really exalt him. Uh, I'm going to ask Kevin and Wendy to stand at the front. And if you'd like someone to pray for you, then Kevin and Wendy will be available here at the front to pray for you. Um, Hannah and I will be just here at the front on this side. And one of us or both of us can pray for you there. Um, There's just a few people this morning I know would appreciate just a hand on the shoulder and God's blessing prayed into their life or God's Holy Spirit to help them forward. You might be getting married soon. You might be having a child soon. You might have big decisions to make. Just step forward and be prayed for. If there's a few folk who want to do that, that would be marvellous. Let's stand and sing these songs.